we were accumulating an archive of digital images. So there was ample material to train on. He started conducting research. We were very fortunate to get a grant from the Warren Alpert Foundation that, that funded some of those early studies. Um, and it allowed us to demonstrate that this was possible, um, that it could be done in a very efficient manner using um, a novel way of training the AI. And, you know, at a certain point, we, we recognized that, you know, this was a, a, a really cool thing. But to bring it to actual clinical practice was going to require a scale that we couldn't accomplish in an academic environment. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There are a lot of people talking about AI these days. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? But what about AI and pathology? Do we need it? Will it be useful? Well, for today's guest, and I would also agree, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Dr. David Klimstra is a pathologist, and he's also the chief medical officer and co-founder of PAGE. We're going to talk all about PAGE and some of their products, Dr. Klimstra's career path, and his thoughts on the future of AI in pathology. All right, here's Dr. David Klimstra. We're going to be talking about uh, a bit about your career path and some of the things you're doing now with Page AI, but I wonder if you could go all the way back to the beginning. What would you say was your inspiration to become a doctor? Well, I've always been interested in in biology and science, uh, and I don't know where that came from. But even as a as a kid, I was interested in 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 that, and and ultimately, I think it's a combination of sort of the scientific inquiry. Uh, and a desire to help patients. And you really need to have that in medicine today. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging profession and, uh, you know, you, you, you need to have the right motivation uh, to get into it. And I think that those two things came together for me. So that's, that's what, that's what uh, pushed me in that direction. Okay. Did, were there other things like kind of in the running besides medicine with other things like pursuing science? Yeah, I, you know, briefly considered the possibility of just doing research as, as a career as opposed to uh, going to medical school. But, you know, as I said, I think, you know, the idea of, of, of doing science, but then also being able to see how that science is helping people directly. You know, on the more basic side of science, you can do some very interesting and important things, but it's a long distance uh, to seeing them come into any practical util- utility. So I think it was that combination that, that really prompted me to, to choose medicine. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, as we're going to talk about it, that, that kind of has never, that uh, idea has never left you. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, so what about pathology then? Like going in, going through, or I guess going into medical school, did you have pathology in mind or was there other specialties? Uh, well, you know, they tell you when you start medical school that even if you think you know what specialty you like, you should keep an open mind, get exposed to everything, because most people change their mind. Okay. Um, as it turned out, I, we had a family friend who was a rather well-known pathologist that I'd known since, you know, I was a teenager. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't heavily pushing me, but I did have exposure. I'd been to his laboratory. He gave, gave me a textbook, uh, you know, and, and so I, I had some some working knowledge of it. You know, when I went to medical school, you know, they really try to expose you to all the clinical disciplines. And I, I went into it with gusto and tried to see what, what I like. But I kept coming back to 
the fact that I, that I like working with, with microscopic detail and I like understanding things at a more mechanistic level. Often when you're, when you're treating a patient, you think you understand what's wrong with them, but you don't have the level of uh, detail that we have in pathology, especially working in cancer where you can actually see what's happening and, and understand it at a cellular level. And so I think, you know, I, I loved many of the clinical specialties, but I, at the end, came back to pathology as the as the most uh, stimulating for me. Okay, I can understand that. I, somebody told me once, and it was one of these uh, podcast interviews, that the pathologist is the only doctor that has all of the information. Yes, I mean the the joke is that they that they they get it late, <laughs> right? But, but uh, you're right. I mean, the pathologist is obviously trained to understand clinical information, uh, perhaps not at the level as as an oncologist or a surgeon, but, you know, so they have that information. They have uh, molecular information. They have histologic information. They do special studies to the tissue. And so they can integrate uh, to make a diagnosis, which I think is also very appealing. It gives you the sense that you're really understanding the entirety of the disease. Now, you went on then to specialize in pancreatic, hepatic, and, and GI pathology. Yes. And where, where did that in, interest come from? Again, you know, things are, things are um, you know, sort of just happenstance in a way. I, I, as a resident, I had a very unusual case of a pancreatic tumor. And the, the, the person I was working with, uh, Juan Rosai, uh, who, who I, I trained with at Yale and then went with him to Memorial Sloan Kettering, was was interested in this. And he said, you know, there's never been a decent uh, pathologic study on this particular kind of pancreatic cancer. And you should write one. And so I did. I started doing research on it. And of course, once you start to get into the discipline, you, you become more and more interested. Um, at the time, there were very few pathologists who really had focused on tumors of the pancreas. And, and so it was an opportunity to get into something where there wasn't a lot of expertise to begin with. Um, and therefore, there was a need. And then I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, which, um, you know, has a, a major pancreas cancer uh, surgery and oncology program. So there was a lot of clinical material to study, and it just fostered my interest further. I'm, I'm curious about the, the like the subspecialties, because it seems like now most pathologists have a subspecialty, sometimes two or maybe three. Um, but like when I started as a PA some 20 years ago, I mean, that really wasn't a common uh, common thing. Most pathologists were kind of general and had yeah. maybe a subspecialty interest. Uh, is that is that kind of how it worked out for you as well? Yeah, definitely. In fact, when I went to, to Memorial in 91, um, the practice was completely general. So yeah. the Pathology faculty would read everything from skin to neuropathology to, you know, every different uh, solid tumor, uh, sarcomas, you name it. And, um, you know, Rosai pushed us to subspecialize because he really felt that this was was the way of the future. And there were a couple of other institutions that were doing it already. We never managed to pull it off while he was there. And in fact, uh, I was an opponent of it at the time because I felt, well, you know, I'm in GI. And GI at a cancer center only sees a fraction of what that discipline really is, right? I mean, GI has a lot of medical disease uh, that we didn't really see much of. And I thought, boy, that's going to be awfully limiting. But what began to happen is as clinical care became more and more sophisticated, the detailed information 
that was necessary from each specimen became more and more um, sophisticated and, and extensive. And it soon became impossible to keep on top of, you know, every aspect of the pathology of every different organ. And so we naturally moved towards it as the demands for precision, um, you know, came from the clinical colleagues. I'm curious how that kind of affected you sort of personally, like, I mean, because now you're pretty much dealing with complicated cases all of the time and you never get, I, I don't know, I don't know, a gallbladder or an appendix, you know, something kind of simple or easy a little bit. Is that was that more stressful or was it because it was more interesting? It was easier. You know what I mean? I, I think what, you know, and I'm a, I'll speak for myself, but I think this okay. opinion was shared by a lot of people who were, who were there when subspecialization happened. And, you know, on the one hand, it meant that you didn't have as much opportunity to see the diversity of disease. You can imagine, you know, somebody who has for their entire career only looked at, at one organ, breast cancer, or whatever, that, mm-hmm. you know, there are learnings that you get from studying uh, the whole spectrum of cancer that apply to breast cancer or to lung cancer, et cetera. And, and if you're not exposed to that, you, you don't have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to learn from that. On the other hand, it does allow you to get to a level of disease understanding that I think has become critical in the the role that pathologists should be playing in the care of cancer patients. It's not just being able to look at a slide and make a diagnosis. It's really understanding how your diagnoses impact the treatment of the patient and what precise information is going to make a big difference for that individual patient. And you just, it's not physically possible to do that across all disciplines. So I think the responsible thing when you're working, especially in a large academic center that has the resources to do it, is 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 for people to to focus on one or two different diseases where they can maximally benefit the patients and their, their doctors by uh, having a, an in depth understanding of the whole disease. Okay, I like that. That's that's a good a good uh, point of view on that. Good perspective. You know, I, I was reading up. There was a press release from from Page, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But it it was a quote from you, and it said, "I've seen that digital pathology is the future of our discipline, and the application of AI to digital pathology is the pathway to drive adoption." How did digital pathology come into your sort of realm? Um, let's start there. Okay. Well, I you know for one thing I, I certainly can't take credit for you know introducing digital pathology at MSK right um, I was chair of the department and chief of search path before that at the time when this was up and coming and there were a number of people in the department Victor Reuter being one of them who was very interested in this uh, was a very early adopter and pushed us to um, you know start scanning slides the Initial uh, impetus to do this was that, you know, 40% of the case volume is submitted from other institutions. And so um, those slides increasingly needed to be returned as institutions were under pressure to maintain custody of their material. And so um, scanning the slides allowed us to retain a digital copy, which could then be accessed in the future for comparison, for research, whatever. As we started doing this, some of the efficiencies that this allowed became increasingly apparent. Instead of waiting a week for a slide to come back from the archives in the Bronx, you, you know, open a viewer and it's right there. 
Um, you can see it in real time when you're looking at a frozen section of the subsequent specimen, et cetera. So, you know, that, that was a, a huge motivator and it enabled the faculty to get more comfortable with the digital format because they realized that this is, you know, really a big improvement. Once you start to accumulate digital images, it gives you the opportunity to do other things. And that's where AI came in. That We realized that we had enough data that we could start to train these very data intensive artificial intelligence models that could allow diagnostic assistance uh, using AI and, and potentially really then promote the use of digital pathology. So that's the basis of the quote, which is that if you're planning to go through the expense and the um, sort of turmoil of changing to a digital practice, it's helpful to have some tools you can use that aren't available in an analog practice that, that you know, make the end result more worthwhile. Now, you mentioned with subspecialization, how you were initially kind of against it. What about with digital pathology? Were you on board right away? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very hard to wrench a microscope out of the hands of a pathologist. Um, you know, we're sort of uh, ingrained to sit in front of those oculars and, and, and look through the microscope. And, you know, the, the efficiencies that you enjoy in terms of, you know, moving the slide around and jumping from slide to slide very quickly, changing focus and, and focusing the scope up and down to see through artifacts, all of this kind of stuff. You lose some of that in the digital environment and there's an adopter penalty there. So like many pathologists, when I first started looking at digital images, this was back in maybe, you know, 2008, okay. um, the, the, the image resolution wasn't that good. The viewing software wasn't that good. Many of the tools that have now been created and introduced uh, didn't exist. And so you were, you were aware that, well, this is fine for looking at a, an odd slide of an old case, but I would never want to use this for my daily practice. Well, a lot of that has changed. And I think, you know, I was fortunate to be, you know, involved as these changes were happening and you could see the improvements in resolution, in viewing capabilities, in accessing uh, material from, from a, you know, a storage system. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was resistant to it, but, you know, when I, when I left MSK two years ago, uh, I still wasn't formally signing out digital until the pandemic. And then that really changed things because now pathologists were trying to look at cases remotely and having access to digital images was a, was a, a major uh, benefit in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the pandemic for, for digital pathology, it was a, I don't want to say a good thing, but kind of because it helped push that forward a, a little bit. And one of maybe one of the kind of, uh, I don't know, was it silver lining there of that pandemic cloud? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to refer to anything about the pandemic as a positive, but it, it, yeah. did, it did initially allow for suspension of the requirement that that diagnostic work be done in a physical location with a CLIA license. So going into the pandemic, it was actually not possible to sign out remotely unless you got a CLIA license for your house. Uh, that was suspended early in the pandemic, and it's now been permanently suspended. And so um, that opened up all sorts of opportunities, not just, you know, for, for pandemic remote practice, but for distributed practice in general. So now if you have a central laboratory, you can have pathologists in a bunch of, you know, regional hospitals, for instance, who are looking at slides that have been scanned centrally, and they never have to have the physical slide in their hands. And and so this has all become you know, possible and facilitated by the experiences we had during the pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And it makes for, I, I think, a far more efficient uh, system. Right. So you're, you're, you're working with digital pathology and you're realizing the need for, like you mentioned, these extra, you know, this is how AI came into the picture. How did, how did page get started out of that? Was that kind of built off of you're realizing that need? Yeah, I think so. I, well, yes, the answer is yes. The, the, okay. um, uh, we had recruited Thomas Fuchs, who's my co-founder of page to do computational pathology, which is, you know, training uh, AI models using pathology images. Um, Initially, he worked both with pathology and uh, medical physics. And, uh, you know, we we were accumulating an archive of digital images. So there was ample material to train on. He started conducting research. We were very fortunate to get a grant from the Warren Alpert Foundation that, that funded some of those early studies. Um, and it allowed us to demonstrate that this was possible, um, that it could be done in a very efficient manner using um, a novel way of training the AI. And, you know, at a certain point, we, we recognized that, you know, this was a, a, a really cool thing. But to bring it to actual clinical practice was going to require a scale that we couldn't accomplish in an academic environment. It was going to re- require investment. It was going to re- require regulatory approval, you know, training at a scale that that would be very challenging with the resources available, even with, you know, generous grant funding. Um, and so that's what led us to, to spin off the company was to, to create that mechanism to bring it to clinical practice. And, and, and that's what we've done. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the the page platform. Then, um, I'm I'm curious, like, what what do you think are some of like the most important features, or or some of the things that makes Page unique from some of the other platforms? <laughs> okay, uh, well, without without calling out any any specific uh, other platforms, I think you know the, sure. the concept that Page has is is sort of an end to end solution. We hear that a lot, right? But the the problem we have in digital pathology is there are multiple different scanners. There are multiple different viewers. There are multiple different platforms, laboratory information systems. Even the the image format is different depending upon the scanner. And so, you know, if you're trying to build this and you basically say, well, let's, let's go, we'll pick this scanner. Well, maybe we'll pick this viewer and this platform and try to figure out how it's going to work with our LIS. It's a big challenge. It's very, very difficult. So the interoperability that that Page offers is that it's agnostic to any of the scanners. So the viewer mm-hmm. can accommodate images uh, from any scanner, uh, integrates with the LIS, so it can take in the data from the LIS, which triggers the AI to run. It's AI-enabled, so it runs our AI or anyone else's AI. Um, and so, you know, probably the most unique thing about it is that it's really, uh, you know, pardon the the phrase a soup to nuts solution which which will enable you to go from the dig, from the glass slide and the scanning then all the way to sending data for a report at the other end okay i see yeah i remember kind of in the early days of of when digital pathology was becoming it's somewhat popular, at least talked about. And there was all this talk about, you know, the scanners have different formats and there's not interoperability. And it seems like now you've got solutions for this and page being one of them, like it, you can accommodate different scanners and different uh, formats and things. And it's sort of, I think everybody thought there was going to be a huge problem having to change the scanners. And now it's just 
you can use any scanner for any. You can use any scanner. I mean, I think the field, you know, ultimately should try to move towards like what they have in radiology, the DICOM standard for the images. So we know that all the images are interoperable. We're not there yet. And um, for a variety of reasons, I don't see that in a very short term future. So, you know, having a scanner agnostic platform is the next best thing to that. So, yes, that's, I think, one of the major benefits to our to our platform. Okay, sure, sure. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. David Klimstra. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. David Klimstra on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, there was one thing, every, I mean, everybody was talking about this when it happened. So Page Prostate Detect it was it was the first FDA approved AI based pathology product available for in vitro diagnostic use, and this right. was a huge deal when it happened, and I think it's still a huge deal. Um, so tell me about uh, Page Prostate and what is it and what does it do? Sure. So you know this is one of a number of different uh, diagnostic algorithms that we've produced, um, and by mm-hmm. diagnostic I mean this is essentially decision support for the pathologist. It it helps identify uh, areas of cancer in prostate core biopsies. Um, The FDA cleared portion of this is a tool that will scan uh, the entire slide and point to the area of greatest statistical likelihood of harboring cancer. Um, So if there's nothing there, it tells you there's nothing there. And if there is something there, it will find a, a, a focus that it wants to draw your attention to. Um, the FDA cleared it as a second read tool, which means that you're supposed to turn it on after you've previewed the slide to make sure you haven't missed anything. And, you know, in the seminal study that, that was used to get FDA approval, we, we showed a 70% decrease in diagnostic errors by using this tool. So it, it is effective when, when used in that manner. It turns out that the, the page prostate has a variety of other functionality that is not FDA cleared, but is available for research use, which are things like, uh, you know, calculating the length of the of the tumor, uh, Gleason grading, finding perineural invasion. And, and, you know, so these are these are other uh, other tools. But I think for us, the idea of getting FDA clearance was to demonstrate that there was a level of quality involved in both designing the algorithm and then more importantly, in validating the algorithm to prove that it generalizes. So with an FDA cleared product, you still do a little laboratory verification, but you can essentially plug this into any practice environment as is and use it. Um, because it's been tested on data from, you know, a whole range of patient populations 
you know, histology from 800 different institutions went into uh, the validation. So, um, you know, it, we know that it generalizes against almost anything you could throw at it. And that's the level of functionality that we believe AI should have before you you use it clinically. It seems like having this FDA approval or clearance, like this is uh, the proof of concept, like computational pathology does work. And um, so it's, it it was just, I think it's like just kind of the first in probably what's going to be a long line of uh, algorithms that would, that could be used. Right. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting. We, we got this approved almost two years ago. And, um, since it was the first, it was a de novo sub- submission and it essentially set the bar for how one gets FDA clearance for yeah. a product like this. So we assumed that there would be, you know, numerous other things following now that the, uh, the steps that you have to do to get it approved, uh, were, were clarified. Uh, but in fact, there is yet to be a second, um, FDA cleared. AI tool in pathology. And it, it does demonstrate that, that the, the bar is rather high, um, even for us to go back in with a second product, which we, we will do. But, you know, as one of our um, academic customers said, you know, I don't necessarily need every AI tool to be FDA cleared. But the fact that you have some that are shows that your process for creating these is top notch. And, and that's, we believe that as well. We use the same process for all of our algorithms that we used to develop um, the prostate detect. Now, you mentioned that it uh, reduces diagnostic errors. I think you said 70%. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, I gotta, I gotta think that there's a efficiency aspect to this or a time-saving aspect to this as well, right? Sure, sure. And I, I think the, uh, the use case of, of using it as a second read uh, as FDA cleared it, um, doesn't maximize the efficiency that the tool could provide because you, you, you should read the slide initially and then turn it on. So it's in that context, it's more of, um, more of a, uh, uh, quality assurance, uh, exercise. Okay. Um, you know, for, for, to really maximize the benefit of efficiency, you want something that, you know, will, will help you find things more quickly. This is, for instance, what we've developed for the lymph node uh, tool, um, which is um, released and available for breast cancer at this point. Okay. Um, so it, you know, it pre-screens the lymph nodes and will draw your attention to metastases, whether they're, you know, obvious macrometastases or 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 small micrometastases, and so it can really speed up the process of reviewing the um, the lymph nodes. Um, and I think many of these algorithms do have that potential. There's other types of efficiency too. So for instance, if I'm struggling with a prostate and I'm not sure whether this is cancer or just atypia and I, the algorithm gives me some added confidence, maybe I don't waste two days ordering immunohistochemistry on that case. And so, you know, the pathologist may not have been quote, faster, but at the same time, the case, the report was released two days earlier. Okay. That, that's a huge time savings then. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. All right. You, you mentioned page breast. So let's, let's move on to that then. Tell me about this, like how after page prostate was a, a success and was FDA approved, how, how long until page breast kind of came into being? 
Well, Paige, you know, we were working on multiple things and we continue to work on multiple things. So, okay. uh, you know, the, the basic training for the breast algorithm was completed, you know, well over a year ago. There's been a lot of fine tuning because the um, output of this algorithm is a little bit more um, comprehensive than for prostate, which is either, you know, positive or negative. Page breast also uh, discriminates between in, in, introductal or, or lobular in situ versus invasive cancer. And so there's a little bit more of a complicated output. It does have a similar functionality in the sense that it will screen breast tissue, whether it's a core biopsy or a resection, lumpectomy, et cetera, um, and find the most suspicious area. But it also has, um, you know, a tissue map like we have for prostate that will delineate all suspicious regions, which includes, you know, atypia, DCIS, LCIS and invasive, or it will only find the invasive carcinoma. So you're able to use it in in different ways, depending on what you're trying to find in that particular case. And then it's it's actually a suite of products that includes the lymph node detection, uh, as I mentioned, that that, uh, will find metastases. Um, We have a partnership with a company called MindPeak that enables the automated quantification of the standard biomarkers, ER, PR, HER2, and P67. And then finally, we've also built a tool that that will identify uh, her two uh, negative cases from H and E, and this is this is something that is sort of at the cutting edge because of the recent advances in her two directed therapy using antibody drug conjugates like in her two, which basically has completely changed the definition of her two expression uh, into a realm where the existing immunized chemical and fish assays were not really designed to work. And so we built an assay that can help recognize cases that literally have no actionable HER2 expression at all. Um, and this is this is a product that's sort of waiting for additional clinical outcome data for final validation. Wait, so you're saying you can detect HER2 status from H&E? Yes. This is the most exciting aspect, okay. really, of AI and pathology. Which is which is that you know there's information embedded in tissue morphology that correlates with a lot of upstream uh, alterations at the genomic level at the gene expression level that you know ultimately are manifested by changes in the protein content of cells and of course protein is among the the you know the structural elements of the cell. And so, you know, if you want to complete the the picture, it, 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 it you know, the, the, the genomic alterations that accompany cancer are reflected in changes of tissue structure. Some of these we know are quite self-evident, right? I mean, there are certain, for instance, CDH1 mutations okay. cause the loss of expression of e-cadherin on the cell surface, which means the cells don't stick together anymore and they grow individually. And that's what characterizes lobular carcinoma. Um, so you, there's a pretty easy a direct line between the nature of the genomic alteration and the morphologic manifestation of results. AI enables us to potentially pull out things that pathologists may not have recognized yet that, that are related to the underlying genetic alterations of cancer, but they're manifested in a change in tissue architecture or cellular structure. So to get back to HER2 expression, do we know why 
her two negative cases have a different histology than her two positive ones at a mechanistic level? Well, perhaps not. But the fact is they do. And AI was able to be trained to recognize those differences and predict which cases are truly negative. Okay, so so now we're talking about as far as efficiency goes, we're saving time. We're probably saving money because you're not having to do extra tests to to determine her her two status. Correct, and and you're also getting into an area where the existing tests don't work very well. Okay, um, you know the the clinical data show that patients with IHC zero, right? So this is these are not even in the the new her two low category. They're truly IHC zero a third of them respond to the drug, right? So what we're, what we're learning is that there's a level of HER2 expression that's below what we detect with immunistic chemistry that's actually clinically important. And that's why, you know, the idea we have now is we should be training the AI not based on an existing pathology parameter, but based on a clinical outcome we want to predict. So we want to predict response to therapy don't try to replicate an existing imperfect biomarker, but actually look at the clinical outcome. Look at who responded and who didn't and try to find out whether there's a morphologic, morphologic signal that the uh, AI can recognize. There won't be for everything, believe me. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not going to be a panacea, but for some very critical um, outcome measures, we can predict it using simply the H&E. That's, that's fascinating. And just kind of the pursuit of this i mean this is you're helping a, an, an entire new group of patients that probably wouldn't get the, uh you know that treatment before so this kind of goes back to the, the whole beginning for you yes it does we're also hoping that this will empower pathologists uh, uh-huh. to provide more impactful information from the, the, the material that they're reviewing um, some of these uh, outcome predictions uh, can be based on a series of molecular tests or gene expression assays, and you send the tissue out to an outside laboratory, and three weeks later you get back a report that goes to the clinician. The pathologist is really not involved in that, right? I mean, this brings the, the capability of providing that vital clinical information back into the hands of the pathologist, uh, which going back to what I said at the beginning, enables them to integrate that information with all the other diagnostic information they're providing and yeah. to really give a more comprehensive assessment of each individual patient's cancer. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I, you know, it seems like this is just the beginning of all of this and having pathology and pathologists be, like you said, the, it, the they're like the drivers of this and they should be integrating all this information and it keeps it all in pathology where it should be. That's been my position from the beginning. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Okay. Now, all right. So the last thing I wanted to ask you then, all right. So we looked kind of back to the beginning now looking towards the future then, what do you think would be the next kind of big thing in pathology with regards to AI? So I've been alluding to it, right? I think, I think the idea that we're going to be able to predict endpoints from, from histology and that it doesn't have to be limited to H and E, you know, there's on the, on the horizon is so-called multimodal, AI in which you take in data from multiple sources, which can be medical record information, uh, genomic information, H&E histology, immunohistochemistry, even things like radiographic images. And you integrate this into a multimodal um, AI that, that provides a level of prediction that you couldn't get from any one data source alone. 
But, you know, really what we're getting towards is the idea that using machine learning, which is based on, you know, unfathomable amounts of data that and, and unfathomable amounts of compute power, that we can learn to find signals for biological outcomes that have eluded us uh, up until now. And, you know, when you look at precision medicine broadly, And the idea that, well, we're going to sequence patients and we're going to give them precise drugs to target the mutations they have. It's a great concept. It isn't moving the needle as much as we thought it would because cancer genomics is is complicated. Uh, Cancer cells are heterogeneous. Uh, Genomic alterations are not the only uh, alteration that's occurring, you know, certainly at the DNA level in in a cancer cell. And so only by integrating all this information can we really begin to, uh, you know, truly understand how each individual patient's cancer is going to behave and respond. Okay, that makes sense. Now, any anytime you're talking about AI, you know, there's always some people that, that are thinking, you know, it's going to replace pathologists. Yeah. What, what do you think about that question? Well, I, 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 look, first of all, most of the AI we're talking about right now is is this decision support, which... Quite mm-hmm. frankly, um, you know, the pathologist is still responsible for the final diagnosis. You know, will it will it make you faster um, if the lymph nodes are automatically identified? Yeah, sure. Could it mean that we don't need as many of you? Let's hope so, because we're facing like a 25 percent deficit of pathologists in this country, not to mention the rest of the world. Right. Where the number of pathologists per capita is much lower than it is in the U.S. And so I, I think pathologists need that help. And it enables them to put aside some of the more mundane aspects of their practice and focus on the stuff that's truly impactful. So the AI found something. The pathologist still has to say definitively, is this cancer or not? Is this a metastasis or did it find some benign breast tissue in the lymph node, which can't happen? You know, so these are these are there's always going to be a need for the pathologist to oversee the AI. And then, you know, on the flip side, when we're talking about biomarkers, as I said, I think this is going to empower pathologists to have access to information, but it's it should not just be data. And I think this is one of the problems I've had with a lot of pathology uh, to now is, is it's data output. And I don't think that's where our job ends. I think our job is to interpret the data and to put it all in context. And given the volume of data that we're faced with today, we're going to need the help of AI to make sense of it. But the pathologist should have those reins in their hands and and be responsible for that data integration. You know, this may seem like a future concept, but a few years ago, the idea of AI helping to diagnose cancer seemed incredible. And today it's available for routine clinical use. So I do think, I hope within the course of my remaining career, I am going to see these uh, practice changing advances uh, take place. Uh, yeah, I, I I love it. That's that's a great uh, great message. I think that's a that's a great place to end. So, Doctor Klimster, this is this has been a really interesting conversation. I love talking about uh, these kinds of things, the uh, the AI aspect of pathology, and just looking at how the field is going to change uh, in hopefully the not too distant future. So, uh, Doctor David Klimster, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Roy Jensen as we talk about the interaction of pathology and pathologists with other medical specialties in cancer care. It seems natural that uh, you know a pathologist would be uh, would be cancer center director, but uh, it's not it's not very common. In fact, I only I think there's only three center directors that are currently in the NCI portfolio right now. That's interesting. I, I feel like a pathologist would be the exact person you would want as a director of a cancer center. Well, most commonly it's uh, it's medical oncologists uh, oh, okay. that fill that role. But um, yeah, I, I found it to be incredibly useful because of course pathology interacts with you know, pretty much the entire range of, of clinicians that um, yeah. that treat cancer, uh, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, you know, the whole the whole gamut of, of folks and are in our course are tend to be broadly familiar uh, with a wide variety of different types of, of cancer. You can hear more from Dr. Roy Jensen in episode 126. All right. Great. Big thanks to Dr. David Klimstra. Now, like I've said many times before, this is an exciting time to be in the field of pathology. And this episode is definitely an example of that. Paige is doing some really fascinating work in the area of AI and pathology. And Dr. Klimstra only mentioned just some of what they're doing. And the best part is this is only the beginning. So it will be very interesting to see what the future holds for these applications in the next couple of years. And as Dr. Klimstra mentioned, and of course, we've talked about many times, there is a shortage of pathologists all around the world. So hopefully the use of AI will help to fill that gap. So again, fascinating episode. I really enjoyed this one. And if you're still on the fence about the usefulness of AI, just check out the show notes for this episode because they were written by AI. And in those AI written show notes, you'll find links to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Not surprisingly, after last week's episode, I've got quite a few new listeners in New Zealand. Also, hello to those of you in Japan, Germany, and India. Thank you all for listening. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link to Health Podcast Network in the AI written show notes for this episode. And while you're there, make sure you check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Drank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.